Good Monday morning. Welcome to Connect, the California MBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with uh, movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. We've got a great guest today, and I'm really excited to uh, chat with him for a few minutes about uh, his take on where we're at in the mortgage industry right now and sort of what's uh, what's behind us, what's ahead, and just sort of a great uh, got a great uh, perspective on uh, the industry right now. So we'll get to that conversation here in just a minute. But before we do, I want to talk to you about our sponsors at Incelerate. Incelerate helps lenders close more loans through better borrower engagement as the mortgage industry's most innovative marketing and sales engagement platform. Incelerate CRM helps lenders manage workflow, contact strategies, lead management, referral, and realtor partners in reporting. Incelerate's engagement platform automates multi-channel marketing through social media, email, direct mail, text messages, ringless voicemail, and phone calls, all pre-built with the strategies and content to enable a better borrower engagement. Incelerate integrates with the software that's already powering your business today and well into the future. And in, and in addition, the platform is SOC 2 and SSAE 18 certified to satisfy the, closely, the most closely regulated businesses, including those banks with uh, mortgage subsidiaries. So for more information or to check out a demo, make sure and go to Incelerate.com or contact the company at the number listed in the description below. So uh, before we get into the conversation, I want to make sure and uh, uh, toss it here to Susan Malazzo, the California MBA CEO, to give us an update on what's going on with the California MBA. This is Susan with the California MBA here with your weekly video update. Recently, we've been talking with you about some great legislative successes that we've had here in California, of which we are very proud. Um, I'd like to remind all of you that the way we can stay strong and represent the real estate finance industry in California is to have your membership, your support through membership. We're running a great promotion right now. You can get 50% off of your initial membership dues with the California MBA. So I urge you to visit our website or email me directly, susan at cmba.com, and I'll give you the information about how you can be supportive of the California MBA and support the organization that supports you and your company. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time. All right, Susan, we'll appreciate that. And uh, now we're going to get right into our conversation. Our guest today is an old friend of the California MBA, uh, Dave Stevens. Dave is the CEO of Mountain Lake Consulting. He's also obviously the former uh, president and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, former FHA commissioner, and just a, a longtime veteran of the industry. And uh, I think he's going to have some uh, good, uh, good information for us today. So welcome, Dave. Hey, Dustin. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah likewise. So let's uh, let's start at the beginning, Dave. I'm, I'm curious. Tell us your backstory. How did you end up in the industry, and sort of what led you through your path through, uh, you know, FHA, MBA, and where you're at now? Uh, sure. Well, I went to uh, I went to the University of Colorado, and of course majored in mortgage banking. Not <laughs> just like um, <laughs> exactly like all of us. But uh, no, it was the early '80s, and I graduated from uh, the University of Colorado. I was doing some other work in, in a political world, um, uh, doing some political organizing. And honestly, I just needed to make some money uh, to save up so I could go back. And uh, I actually was planning to go to law school and uh, started as a loan officer for World Savings, which, as you know, is a California-based lender back in the day. And uh, did that in Denver, Colorado, and found great success as a loan originator. and. Uh, Got moved into management, and you know, 15 years later, I was running most of the world savings lending organization. Um, and the accident continued, and I, you know, Freddie Mac uh, wanted to build more of a sales culture, and I got recruited to 
moved to the East Coast and uh, had sales. I ultimately got promoted to run all of single family uh, for Freddie uh, in my, you know, under decade there. Um, my biggest customer was Wells Fargo. They recruited me. Uh, Mark Oman, who was running the firm at the time, uh, told me I told me I was coming to work for him. I said, okay, I guess I am. And uh, became the EVP there, headed wholesale. Um, big real estate firm called Long and Foster on the East Coast uh, would have gotten me off of airplanes. I was traveling five days a week pretty much with Wells. So um, Wes Foster, who owned the real estate company, 14,000 real estate agents, a couple mortgage companies, some title businesses. Uh, he recruited me in uh, to head the affiliated businesses, ultimately put me in charge of the whole real estate company. Um, and then I would have frankly been there to this day had President Obama not been elected. He was elected, and next thing you know, I'm being asked to come to a meeting in Washington where this NEGAM loan rep from World Savings back in the early 80s is suddenly asked to, is being asked to go through Senate confirmation uh, and become the Federal Housing Commissioner. Um, as you all know, I did that for a little while, and then uh, once the Tea Party came in and took over, and we all realized not much more is going to be done, a lot of us left, and I ended up at the Mortgage Bankers Association. That was my uh, most visible run, I think, for our industry, and then uh, retired a couple of years ago and started a consulting business. So here you here you go, from pure accidental service into the mortgage banking industry to a really great career uh, looking in the rearview mirror. That's fascinating, David. So I, I'm curious, one of my, uh, and as someone who uh, um, worked in uh, politics before uh, uh, my position here, I, I absolutely, you know, sympathize with the need to make some money at some time. Yeah. I think a lot of people tend to think that, you know, people who work in politics, you know, they don't realize that that is the least lucrative, uh, you know, uh, path you could go at that time. So, yeah, uh, so true. Uh, it's, it's interesting then that uh, you, uh, you know, had to make some money and uh, with the plan always of going back and, you know, yeah, just same here, you know, it's one of those things where I just never, never found my way back. And uh, so I'm curious what, when you made that transition into uh, uh, public service at, uh, uh, as the FHA commissioner, what was the biggest adjustment you had to make having had such a deep, uh, um, a deep career on the, in the private sector? Yeah. Um, the pay, no, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, Honestly, the biggest challenge was the pace. Um, working for the Obama administration in 09, we were moving at you know very fast pace to try to get things done. And then we were confronted with the pace of legislation and actually the regulatory structure. I mean, HUD is a slow moving uh, institution. And you know, in the private sector, you wanna hire somebody, you find somebody, you do the interview, you hire them. Uh, in, at HUD, it doesn't work that way. You have to go through a panel and you have to be make sure there's no personal bias in the decision and you're prioritizing veterans. And just, you know, not that it was bad, it was just, it, it, it was pretty mind-numbing the difference. Um, but I will tell you one of the things we bring, and I, I literally just got off the phone with a, a company I'm advising. Washington is all about selling ideas. And what people don't realize is if you can communicate effectively and you can sell concepts, um, you can win uh, decision makers to come your way. And I thought that was a big strength that I didn't realize was needed when I walked in, but working the Hill and meeting with members and uh, other regulators around Washington, working with people in the White House to try to get things done when we were dealing with the housing crisis and implement programs, 
a lot of it was just effective communication skills and being able to, you know, encapsulize ideas in a, in a motivational way to get people to start nodding their heads. We all learned that in the mortgage business because that's what we had to do for all our lives. And it became sort of a natural skill set that really helped me, I think, in many ways above others that had been in my job before or uh, others in Washington who were, you know, more wonky about approaching things. And it, it, it turned out to be an effective, effective uh, uh, talent to have. Yeah, I think especially with, uh, you know, uh, members of Congress, I have to imagine, that are dealing with, you know, every type of issue from every different angle. I mean, they're obviously not going to be an expert in the industry. So to your point, I mean, if you could, you know, sort of, you know, not dumb it down, but simplify the concepts yeah. and crystallize them, I think that's obviously going to make a difference in, you know, winning. Yes, winning you, you know that all too well, Dustin. That's right. They're spread a mile wide and an inch deep on any policy issue. They're not thinking about us at all. So the way you can get in and capture their attention quickly and get to the point uh, is really important. Absolutely. So I'm curious in, uh, you know, whether it's at, uh, um, working uh, at uh, HUD there, FHA, or at the MBA or in the private sector before that, what was maybe the biggest challenge you faced in your career and, and what was the key to overcoming it? Well, I had, you know, I had a lot of challenges. A lot, oftentimes I was brought in to, to fix organizations. Um, at Wells Fargo, I came in, we had a 30 something billion dollar wholesale business, uh, ranked pretty far down the food chain. I thought it was a very complicated organizational structure and I reorganized the entire uh, 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 structure there. Um, that wholesale division no longer exists as all mortgage brokers know, but it did in the day. Um, Honestly, my biggest challenge in, in management was my first management job. I was like a lot of folks who were good producers who were promoted. And there was no manual that said, this is how you manage people. Uh, and I, I came into a branch in Denver and wanted to hire a bunch of loan reps who were like me. Uh, type A, very aggressive, you know, whatever it was. And, uh, and I failed. I, I, I made some bad decisions um, and I got rid of some people I should have kept. And it was a mentor who came to me and said, you know, Dave, you're going to fail as a manager unless you start dealing with a, a system and a discipline. And he taught me um, about the management process and situational leadership and some things that I've taken through to this day in terms of how to manage organizations. That honestly was my biggest challenge was that transition from being an individual producer and all about me to being able to build a team. Uh, and I know there's a lot of folks in our industry who have that that same challenge. I mean, there were bigger ones, obviously, as I ran bigger firms um, in terms of crisis. I'll just give you the other one. When I came into the MBA, we were a broke institution. It was never fully disclosed to me during the interview process. But I brought in Marsha Davies immediately. Most people know Marsha at the MBA, but she'd been with me. We had worked together at Freddie. I brought her into HUD and I immediately brought her into the MBA with me to be the chief operating officer. We were in like our third month at the MBA. We weren't sure we'd make payroll. Um, so it was that bad. And the, the employees there were really weary because they had been through a very difficult time uh, because of a bad investment into a, a commercial building that fell apart uh, really at the worst time for the commercial market uh, just during that the, uh, uh, the recession. So you know, all of that to be said, uh, I've had big challenges both running large firms and you know what, what might seem as simple moves moving from uh, a, a producer to management. Um, you learn along the way and you keep learning. I'm learning even to this day you know, about the business and about the dynamics of leadership and running my own consulting practice. So lessons learned as we keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, along the way then, what was your, let's say, your, uh, your biggest victory and, and why? 
Well, um, I'll give you two. Uh, you know, when I worked the world, it was somehow it was, it was easy for me. So I became a, a, one of the top producing loan originators pretty quickly, and I, I did pretty well running branches. You know, started developing those. That's why they made me run regions, and then they made me run divisions, and kept doing that kind of thing. Um, but I had a couple. The, the challenges that were unique to me were. Uh, threefold. When I came to Freddie, I didn't know what an MBS was. I didn't know what a buy up or buy down was. Um, I, I, I knew very little uh, about pair off fees, any of that. I was an originator from the primary side of the market. And I came into Freddie running sales. And I'm sure half the sales force looked at me like, what a lunatic they brought in to do this. Um, and I knew I had to learn quickly. So I actually went to a guy named John McMurray, who was brilliant and still is. Um, and he had a pricing and capital markets at Freddie. And I said, look, dude, you got to teach me this. So he actually had me come to class several days a week at, uh, in the evening. And he whiteboarded for me and showed me how trades work and how the MBS process works and how capital markets work. Because when you're, when you're at the MBA, you're dealing, your, your, your counterpart, your clients are C-suite level executives and head of secondary marketing. And, you know, that, that stuff matters a hell of a lot more than what you rate today and how quickly can you process a loan. So that was an interesting challenge. And I, I, I obviously learned it to the point where it allowed me to get my CMB pretty easily and that kind of thing. But that was a challenge. The other one I was give you was, aside from working in the government, which is interesting, um, I don't want to bore you to death. But it, when I came into the MBA, as I just described, we were broke and uh, we were in an office building that we were paying way too much for because nobody else would take us because we had such a bad credit reputation. And, um, you know, people were telling me I needed to cut costs. I remember John Corson, uh, he didn't create it, by the way. John helped fix it. Uh, but he was my predecessor. And uh, he said, you know, this is going to get really hard. And um, I decided instead of cutting costs, I was going to double down and invest in a few areas. And we invested in conferences to make them better and more attractive better content we made the concert free if you remember concert mba used to be or club mba used to be a paid for fee that you go sit at a stuffy table and eat ham and uh i don't know whatever it was and so the uh and so we and then we invested in education we invested in in some key talent like pete mills who as you know very well um okay. bringing him in and you know members started looking at us differently and uh the goal was to be a voice of leadership and unite the industry and you know the turnaround from mba has been Pretty amazing. Thankfully, the market helped us, uh, but it, 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 it's been a pretty amazing success story in terms of what happened from coming out of the ashes and uh, turned into uh, a very, very successful trade association in Washington, which it had been before. Well, and I think that's, I mean, certainly the case. I think every, uh, you know, state MBA, ours included, has seen the, you know, the changes in MBA over the years. And I mean, it's never been better. I mean, it's, you know, fantastic. And we have a great relationship with MBA now that we didn't always have. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, switching gears a little bit here. Um, one thing that uh, we didn't mention in your in your bio there was that uh, you helped co-found a new uh, media outlet, Mortgage Media, here in the last couple of years. And I'm curious, uh, just from a, since I'm a you know marketing PR guy, this is always interesting to me. What opening did you see in the market? What opportunity? What got you interested in uh, you know sort of getting involved in that in that sphere? Well, with all due respect, I had nothing to do with founding Mortgage Media. S.A. Ibrahim founded Mortgage Media. He and Tom Wilkins. Uh, and S.A. you all may remember from his days at Greenpoint in California. Um, but then he also, uh, as you know, ran Radian uh, prior to his uh, departure and sort of retirement. 
but Essay came up with the idea, and uh, he had an idea for a different kind of media platform, an idea that would use multiple forms of uh, media, uh, get industry expertise, have a broader swath of, of, uh, of touch, and uh, brought me on as, as a, uh, I forgot what my actual title was, but I, I came on uh, and decided to d dive in and try to help mortgage media become something of themselves. But as you know, all of us are inundated with too much media and not enough of the right media. Right. And uh, I think mortgage media has gotten some things right. They've done some great podcasts and, and interviews, kind of like what we're doing now um, uh, with industry leaders. I think those find themselves, I find them to be very interesting and something you can listen to in the car. Uh, but it's tough business. And, you know, I look at Housing Wire, I look at all the trades in DC, and they all provide various things that I find interesting. Um, and for all of us, I know we're in our day to day jobs, we're trying to figure out, okay, what data can help me do my job better? Uh, what, what's the piece of news about our business that's going to help me be better in what I do? And that's always going to be the ongoing challenge. But it, it was interesting to do that that sort of end of it. Yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious, what, uh, so I guess, you know, switching gears again here, what, uh, since you started out as an originator, I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are on how, what maybe is the biggest change you've seen in borrower experience over the years? And, you know, maybe what elements remain the same, what's, you know, never going to be the same again, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting going back to the day um, when I worked for a savings and loan. When I first started in the business, you know, this is my age talking to you. Uh, there were no cell phones. There were no computers. Um, we, I mean, there were computers, but none that the loan reps had. Uh, we, my company used to argue that we needed copying machines in the, in the, in the office. Um, and uh, we went out every day with a roll of quarters or a roll of dimes, uh, and we would call in to check our messages and we made face-to-face -face, uh, uh, sales calls to real estate agents. There was no other way to contact them. And we spent our lives trying to figure out how to break into real estate offices through the front door or the back door in order to get face-to-face -face with a realtor, especially if the office was closed. Not too different than many do today, but the internet has changed everything. Uh, technology has changed everything. Uh, I used to stand in the line for a verification of deposit at a bank to get, to get the teller to fill it out. Verification of employment was a manual document filled out by the employer uh, and then tax returns, et cetera, of course, that we would read. We didn't have FICO scores. We didn't have automated underwriting systems. It was just an entirely different business. So what's changed is everything. Um, the, other thing I, the other thing I would just say is there was a lot of friction in the business. Back then, adjustable rate mortgages really had come out in, in strength following 1980 because interest rates had gone up to 18% and arms were really viewed as a solution uh, to provide borrowers lower rates, but for also depositories to have something that adjusted at about the same pace as their deposit rates did. And they came out with the adjustable rate mortgages and California was the leader in all of that. Um, but there was a lot of friction and you couldn't just, a uh, consumer couldn't go online. They needed an LO to explain the products and every product had different terms, different indexes, different capping structures and more. And that friction mandated the need to have a salesperson sit with them at their kitchen table, which is literally what we did, uh, to take applications and explain complicated loan products. Fast forward to today, everything's fully automated. A borrower calls in to an LO or emails or texts or whatever. They're directed to a website to fill out an application. Um, we're much more, we're almost completely commoditized industry where all the products essentially look the same. You know, people argue, loan officers today argue about their 
overlay of whether it's 620 or 630, uh, which to me is a ridiculous debate, when in fact we're all selling 30-year fully amortizing fixed rate mortgages, some, you know, 10 years and things of that sort. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a very commoditized industry and very technology-driven with AUS platforms that are very homogenous in general. And just think of all the people on Encompass that you know may watch this. So um, the challenges are, back then a loan officer was required. It wasn't an option. It was, you couldn't call on the phone and fill out a document over the phone with somebody. You had to meet with them. Uh, and uh, so we were necessary. Today, I wonder, as we go on this fast pace of change, to e-signature, automated underwriting, ultimately uh, automated appraisals will take be the, 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 the vast majority of appraisals that are being done and more. And we all know this is here now and coming our way. What does an LO do to differentiate themselves and become a value provider so that they're needed, and so that they're, they're worth 60, 70, 80 bips in the process? Because at some point, you look at the quickens of the world, and you may remember back in the day we had Elon, which was up in the uh, East, East Bay. They tried it back then. It didn't work because it just wasn't right timing. Now you have Quicken, which is the number one, you know, give or take on the month, the biggest originator in the nation. And I've always had people argue, yeah, well, that's good for refi, but home buyers won't go there. Home buyers are going there. And uh, I think we're really at a crux where, we're an industry that has yet to be truly Amazoned or Ubered. Uh, and I'm sure people, I'm sure cab drivers in New York said, oh, you know, my shield's always going to be worth more than an Uber driver. You know, in New York, they can't give away taxi shields. So it's it's just an interesting time we're all in. Um, and, you know, right now, whenever you show this, every LO is swamped with volume. They're having one of the biggest years or probably the biggest year they've ever had in their career. Uh, they're making a lot of money. They think they're really good, even though everybody's doing just the same thing. And uh, when this all changes uh, over the next couple of years, literally by 2022, as the Fed begins to raise rates and the market shrinks a little bit, uh, there's going to be, I think, a real challenge for origination firms and their staffs to figure out how do I reach the, reach the consumer? What's the best structure? And to have that LO be able to really be a value provider that's needed in the process for the revenue they're, they're making. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Um, well, and in looking at the uh, industry right now, what's your, your maybe your biggest concern as far as the health of the industry? I mean, you're looking at you know, yeah. unemployment or supply or some other metric. What's, you know, what, uh, what's keeping you up at night? Uh, I'll tell you, I worry about um, the fact that we're all thinking this is normal. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I wonder if everybody still has a memory back to early March when we were going out to restaurants and we were looking for a normal purchase market and the Fed wasn't intervening in the interest rate markets um, and we didn't have COVID to face. When COVID hit, my, our whole industry thought it was the end. I mean, I, I was doing calls with state associations and, and in, in individual institutions having to calm down their sales forces. This is, we're gonna get through this, don't worry. Pipelines blew up. We had short position, hedge positions on uh, in-process pipelines. Then the legislation passes, and oh my God, we're not going to have liquidity for advances. And there, there were real concerns on all of this stuff. But look at everybody today. They're awash in mortgages. They can't even barely remember that that happened. And as quickly as that can happen is as quickly as that can end. And um, 
So in the midst of all this, what are we doing to really help home ownership? And what's going to happen if there's a regime change and, and President Biden becomes President Biden, Vice President Biden becomes President Biden. We have a new head of the CFPB because they're going to exercise their authorities that were just given to them by the Supreme Court, likely a new head of the FHFA. And they're looking back and saying, hey, those overlays really hurt African-Americans and Hispanics. What did you guys do about this? How many of you took PPP loans during this process and did you really need to? And I know for a fact right now there are people looking at our industry and looking in fact at PPP as an example and who took loans in that space. Uh, so as we are you know, kicking butt and taking names as it were and having maybe the best years we've ever had as companies or individuals, I worry about what's gonna be the reflection on us as an industry a year from now uh, in terms of how we behaved and how we helped. And a lot of it's not the fault of anybody in the business because the overlays were the result of maybe Director Calabria putting, you know, first payment forbearance policies in place on deliveries to the GSEs. But I'm not sure where people are going to point the finger. And you, as you know, in our industry, we're always getting the finger pointed at us. So you got, Dustin, you and uh, the, CM, the California Mortgage Bankers just fought back a piece of legislation that could have been very harmful uh, on on forbearance uh, rules. And, you know, these kinds of things, agitated legislators uh, look at us and generally assume we're going to do the bad thing. I think that's the way a lot believe. Um, and this is a year where it's just shocking to me because our industry is the one industry in an economy where most everybody else is challenged, literally everybody. And, you know, mortgage bankers and Zoom are, are just absolutely doing great. So um, that's what I worry about. I worry about how we all think about what happens next and how do we start preparing uh, for both any reputational damage that may occur and likely a contracting market and the structure of our institutions. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I can't, it's tough to imagine it getting much better than it is now, which only yeah. means we're headed in one direction at some point. Um, so I'm curious here, you know, especially because this was a, a big initiative uh, that uh, you guys took on when you were at MBA. Um, what progress do you think, where we're at uh, as far as an industry when it comes to inclusion and diversity um, and just not, you know, race, race and, and uh, ethnicity, but what about age as well? I mean, you know, there's right. been a big push in the last couple of years to get more younger people in the industry. And from your perch right. now, where do you see things? Um. You know, you see it as well as I do, and everybody here sees it as well as I do. There are pockets of inspiration, NAREP. Um, I knew Gary Acosta when this was just an idea. Uh, I was working at Freddie Mac, and he came and talked about it. We did it. We, did, we actually tried to do something together with U.S. Bank and do something that would help, uh, his, help Hispanic uh, borrowers look at this thing. It's blown up across the country, the power of the Latino community has just been extraordinary. And Rick and Patty, you know, in your backyard, yeah. um, have done a remarkable job building a firm that has a real Latino heritage at its core. And that's 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 a that's that's natural um, diversity that's built from within. Um, but the industry itself, I think, is still going to be challenged because most of the CEOs are white, um, most are male, most are older. Um, and my 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 demographic still in a general sense dominates the leadership structure of our industry. And we have yet to really figure out how to bring in 
uh, true diversity into the business. And um, uh, unless it comes naturally or through organic players like Eddie Perez at Equity Prime or Patty and Rick Arviello or there's so many uh, who uh, have, have built you know companies on their own, but they're from the community and they can do it. Our biggest challenge, frankly, to me is 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 going to be doing that. The MBAs, you know, put effort into it. Um, but as I saw the diversity conferences that we held in Washington, when I first we bought a diversity conference that had been in place and failed because of economics, so we took over that conference. It still was always the diversity reps of Wells Fargo and the diversity reps from Bank of America, and then we I cajole, you know, we cajole as many other members to come and attend and visit the event, get some HR managers who might come and event, attend. It wasn't a core business uh, practice to try to figure out how do I diversify my business. But to your point, it isn't just ethnic diversity, women and power. Look at what Marsha Davies has done with Empower and the energy that that's brought. In my view, Empower has been the biggest energy that I've seen as a as a part of diversity in our business since NARIP. I think those two have brought the greatest energy and enthusiasm from a diversity standpoint. But youth has been a challenge, and, and I'll, I'll shut up here in a second, but I will tell you, years ago, it was shortly after the Great Recession, and I was I just joined MBA, and one CEO called me, I can't remember who it was, I wouldn't say if it was, anyway, Dave, would you, would you want your son in the business? And it, it was it was a sarcastic comment about how bad the business was, and mm -hmm. um, and I gave him an argument why because I had Mike Fratt and Tony and other economists showing me what they thought was going to happen. I was like, this is going to be fantastic as we come out of this, and uh, and my son got into the business actually, um, but recruiting young people to want to make this a profession is you know obviously a, a critical component, and uh, I'll stop with this. Um, I did a tour of Quicken one summer, and it's a pretty amazing structure. It's very difficult to replicate. Have you been there yeah. to see it? Um, but they had the intern program going on. I think they had a thousand interns, or some huge number, might be ten thousand. I, I want to overstate, but it was a remarkable number of interns, all young kids from colleges, very diverse. They apply. Uh, they reject more than uh, vastly more than apply for these internship roles. They're investing a lot of money uh, with no profit, obviously, to get these people trained and eager to join an industry because the leadership team of Quicken saw growth. Um, others do that in pockets across the country. I'm not sure how we ultimately get there. I am pleased to see that we have Susan Stewart, who's going to head the MBA. Uh, she's going to be sworn in, unfortunately, virtually this year. Uh, a woman head of a uh, essentially a self-built company. We've got Christy Furco right behind her, African-American um, uh, person from Flagstar who's going to come in right behind her, a woman. I think, you know, if you have that kind of thought leadership with more dynamic thinkers who come culturally from that kind of background, you're probably going to do better at getting diversity into your institution. But a lot of good effort, a lot of work to do, I think. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. So, Looking at uh, you know, the uh, sort of the hot topics of the day, um, it's been interesting to me from a, just a PR perspective to see how many companies are you know sort of in some cases dipping their toes, some cases sort of diving in headfirst into uh, uh, political issues, and that's whether that's you know the uh, uh, you know various protest uh, issues or something else. 
it's just it's a far different landscape in that sense than it was you know maybe 20 30 years ago when you know you just companies just did not get political at all over anything um so you know from your perspective i'm curious to know what you know are you bringing up politics justin come on man. <laughs> oh i know yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah it's it's hard it's hard for me to separate my brain sometimes when it comes to this. yeah um so from your perspective i'm curious what considerations should companies make not getting into whether or not you know any particular issue they should take one side or the other but what considerations should they make when deciding and how and when and how much they should get involved politically well that's a tough one because um if you want to have influence over the long term um as a company being apolitical is probably in your best interest. Um, individuals can participate. So if you look at my Twitter feed, I'm pretty aggressive, but I say all views are my own. And uh, and I've had this conversation with you know the companies I work with, and they know that. Um, and so you know Twitter's nothing but a mess anyway. So it's where you yell at each other, and it's always kind of fun. But uh, as as companies, I, I I just think it's it's dangerous to get political. Um, and very challenging because there are human rights issues that we're dealing with today. And um, there's, in my view, things that are clearly right and wrong to me. Uh, but I can assure you, when you dip into those waters, you're going to offend somebody. And uh, if you're willing to tolerate that for your convictions, um, that's fine. And we've seen that with stores, Hobby Lobby is an example, or maybe Chick-fil-A. Um, but and that's offended. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's offended people. I have seen a lot of leaders on industry uh, talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, I'm very open about talking about it, but I run my own company, so you can call my boss. Um, and, uh, but in the end of the day, I think it's, it's a challenging thing. I have a, I'll give you just one example. I live, I have a lake house in Southern Virginia. It's, it's uh, truly Trump territory in Southwest Virginia. And I have a good friend who owns a restaurant and, and they, um, you know, they're, they're not at all supporters, but they also know better than to say anything against. And there's another one nearby them that has pictures of Trump all over their restaurant, which is great, but I don't go to that restaurant. I, I, I just don't I just don't want to face politics when I'm going out for a cheeseburger. Yeah, and, uh, and, and and likewise when you're getting a mortgage. The, I, I don't know what you do, and I think it's worth a it'd be an interesting debate at one of your conferences about um you know the the real uh long-term systemic uh beginning with segregation, slavery and segregation to today, how we got here. And you know, my view, there's a real reality to that. I think it's, um, uh, I think it's why I think we need to be very proactive in recruiting African Americans into our companies, um, because I think there's some affirmative response that never really happened. But again, I don't know what you do as a company in that regard. And even what I just said probably has someone here saying, you know, that lefty, you know, or whatever it is. Well, now that's why it's just you and me. We don't have you know open comments during the. Uh, that's right. <laughs> I like that. And I think your point, it's, you know, that's a conversation that, you know, I think would be even challenging just to have a conference, but especially, like you said, on Twitter, it's, that's just, you know, to your point, it's just a place to, where people go to yell at each other. Yeah, but I will tell you, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a consultant to a couple of independent mortgage bankers, and one who I was on a call with today, he with, with his staff, he's bringing in uh, an African-American leader, very successful man who grew up 
uh, uh, you know, difficult uh, origins from just access and ended up, you know, become the self-success story, you know, a great athlete and more. So he's going to speak to them about his upbringing and just share his perspective. And nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's helping us understand uh, where others come from. And uh, but again, I never see that company ever. They don't post anything, but they do want to talk. They do want to have conversations about awareness within their own firm. Uh, I applaud him for that, but that's yeah. not always easy either. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, I think there's almost something better about building, you know, building that internally and making that part of your culture rather than, you know, it being, you know, something you post on social media and doesn't really have any, you know, belief and doesn't have a company really behind it. It's just sort of a reaction. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious here. Let's, uh, let's uh, switch gears here one more time um, and talk about advocacy again. Something that we're both, you know, I think passionate about. You know what? Uh, I think I can guess what the answer is here, but I think it's important to hear from you. What's what? What? Uh, how crucial is the role that advocacy plays, and speci specifically with groups like the NBA and the California NBA in market today, and especially issues that are relevant to borrowers and lenders alike? You know, the challenge with you bringing up that question is people are going to think this is like a paid political announcement for for both of you and and the national. Uh, when I came into uh, DC and I ran the FHA. Um, we didn't have a great view of the NBA. We didn't think they were, they weren't a very, they weren't, we didn't think their voice was as strong as it could be. And when we ended up dealing with policy decisions, we, remember we were in the uh, center of the storm in 2009. We had the housing team meeting with the president uh, every couple of weeks. Um, it was a pretty amazing enlightening period, but I would call individual institutions if I had questions. I would call the big services. I'd call Wells. I'd call B of A. I'd call uh, J.P. Morgan, and um, the industry really didn't have a big voice. I, I, when I came to the NBA, I realized, and with the help of Bill Kilmer and the team there, that if you want to have voice, you've got to have size, and size matters in policy, and it, it really does. The loan institutions lobby. J.P. Morgan has their own lobby firm. Problem is, whenever they go on the Hill, Elizabeth Warren, she knows it's a big bank, J.P. Morgan from New York, and may actually not help them to have their lobbyists up on the hill doing that. When it's the Mortgage Bankers Association representing 2,000 companies, or the California MBA representing literally every lender in the state of California, there's no member on the hill who can turn away from that. You represent business, you represent votes, um, and you have hopefully a well-funded PAC uh, and can uh, make donations where appropriate uh, and more contributions to campaigns and more. Um, and I can assure you that the big trade groups, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, they're powerful because they're well organized. Uh, they have, they represent a lot of voices and you can't go around on the Hill uh, in Sacramento or in DC and not be well organized. I'll show you one anecdote. Um, there was a time, you may all remember, FHA wanted to implement an admin fee. They were going to charge a fee for every loan to help fund technology for FHA. And it was really supported by the, the, the Obama administration. I, I had left by then, but Sean Donovan in particular was adamant about it. They were sneaking it into appropriations legislation. And we wanted to know, what are you going to use the money for? How long is it going to last? We're not creating a slush fund for you on behalf of consumers who buy homes. And uh, one of the government relations people at HUD called me and says, Dave, 
it doesn't matter if you support us or not, we're going to get it done. And I was like, no, you're not. And the, when it came time for votes on the bill, uh, a woman from the committee called Bill Kilmer and said, look, we don't really care about this admin fee. We'll keep it in or out. What do you guys want? And we said, we want it out. And they never put it into the bill. And Sean, I remember was angry. And he was my boss to this day. He hasn't talked to him. And uh, because we didn't go along with him and they didn't understand that there are voices in Washington in the sausage making that make a difference and can move legislation. You've done it many times. Um, and while we're still fighting pace and getting some wins on that, by the way, uh, there are things where you're gonna win or you're gonna lose, but they're gonna know you're there. And every lender, especially this year, 2020, you have no excuse. You're making tons of money. Um, this is an investment to be a citizen in this industry. And for all the things we've talked about so far, uh, if you aren't an active member of your MBA and their political action committee, you're doing a service. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm retired. I'm, I, I'm a sole consultant. I just gave to Morpac. Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is the stuff you do when you think about the business. So yeah, I mean, the, uh, the bigger the group, the louder the voice. And uh, as, the, as the second biggest MBA in the United States of America after the national, um, you know, that's really important. And that's my assistant barking in the background. She's saying, she's notes saying for join the pack and, and stay as an active member. Wait, I know, yeah, for, I know. Quiet the whole time until you start talking about the pack and, yes. and join that. There you go. She goes crazy about it. Uh, so I well let's uh, we're uh, about out of time here, but I'm curious. Uh, let's have fun with this last question here. You know, so many people in the industry have heard you speak at you know countless conferences over the years, and you know you know probably sat down with you at dinners and meetings and stuff like that. You know, but give us one thing. You know, leave us with one thing that maybe you know most people don't know about you. Um, my great wife, Mary. <laughs> uh, People don't know me. I think the people I've actually most have known my wife because she's been to the conferences. Um, I'm pretty transparent there, dude. Uh, I, I'm, you know, everybody knows I have cancer. Everybody knows I'm a, I, I vote, tend to vote Democrat uh, for the most part. And uh, I worked for Ralph Nader. I'll give you just one story. Uh, in 1980, this isn't big for you guys, but in 1980, um, I was an activist in college too. There's a guy who's very active, been involved in the mortgage banking business in California for years, Brad Blackwell. I don't know if you know him, Dustin. He was yeah. with Wells Fargo. Everybody probably knows him. He and I ran against each other for student body president at the University of Colorado oh, wow. <laughs> in Boulder. And back in the day, CU Boulder had uh, the student government manage the largest student budget of any college in America, bigger than Berkeley. Wow. And I think I think it was a million dollars. This is 1980, whatever it was. And uh, um, I ran as an independent. I was basically a disruptor. Brad was sort of the Democrat guy. And then there were a couple of others who were ROTC candidates who ran. They were sort of the Republican Party. And I ran as a in the middle. I actually, I had a Democratic Socialist as my running mate. And I took votes from Brad. But we became great friends over that time. And um, well, wait a minute, who won the election though? Well, at the time, neither of us did because we split the vote. But they ended up discovering that the ROTC candidates stuffed the ballot boxes. Uh, and the shenanigans Brad, in college election? I can't Brad, imagine. Brad ended, ended up suing them in civil court. Wow. 
won, won the case. They were thrown out of the ROTC program and the school. Brad was placed in student government. He put me on student council. <laughs> Wow. And that was our that was our urgence. And by the way, after college, I, I was working for Ralph Nader. That was my initial political role as a political organizer for uh, uh, Perks. Co-Perg, Calperg is a big thing in California. It's many mm-hmm. colleges. And uh, I ran. I, I was an organizer for them. And uh, I needed to make some money. And Brad, who I had met in college, said, "You should try being a loan officer. You could make twenty five thousand dollars a year." This is nineteen eighty three. I'm going. 25 that i'll buy a jaguar you know it's just funny <laughs> where we all start in our roots but uh that's that's just one of the stories people may not know that's a great story about brad yeah he was one of the very first people when i first started here in 2004 he was one of the very first people i met we actually had a uh, a hearing in the assembly or senate um, yeah. right after i started maybe a week or two after i started and he was testifying and i watched him testify and i said if he, if everybody in the industry is as well-spoken and thoughtful as Brad is, then yeah. I don't know why we'll ever have any problems again. And then, you know, obviously yeah. Brad is maybe the most well-spoken, uh, you know, advocate for the industry. Yeah, he's very good. You know, I think that the industry was, you know, so well-served with him out here, especially when he was yeah. out here uh, advocating for us here. So that's really interesting. I had no idea. Uh, yeah. As someone who was in student government myself, I, you know, those are, oh, there those, you are go. those stories will never get old. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Dave, thanks again for joining us today. Really appreciate the time and the conversation and uh, best of luck to you. Good. And thanks, uh, if, you, if you enjoyed the conversation, then uh, make sure to subscribe to us. We're on YouTube and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and then make sure and uh, we'll be back here on uh, Monday, next Monday morning with another episode of Connect. And we'll see you then.